world needs to hear this. Showing how these reptilian bloodlines in this Chittahuli, this reptilian group, expanded their power across the world. This is what this nonsense is all about. There are lies. There are big lies. They are... There are enormous lies. There are gigantic whoppers. You're dealing with people you cannot rationally have a conversation with. Welcome to Ikeland, the podcast where I, Thomas Robertson, he, him, take you on a journey through the world of British conspiracy theorist David Icke, a self-confessed tireless campaigner for truth. Hello from Ikeland. Hello to everyone back in the real world. I've missed you. It's been a minute since we talked. I hope you're well. I'm very well. Thank you for asking. Also, thank you for your patience. I know that you've been waiting for this episode for a little while. It's been a while coming. My partner and I have welcomed a baby boy to our family, so I've been a little preoccupied, but, uh, you know, I'm back now, and I have enough disdain for David Icke's silly book to go around. So, shall we? Let's get to it. First and foremost, we have a brief news segment, which will probably pop up more often than not. Corrections. Thank you to Morgan, who wrote in to tell me that it's pronounced Leicester, not Leicester. Morgan, you're giving me far too much credit by proposing that that was some sort of clever wordplay on my part about, I don't know, David Icke's inability to tell the truth. No, I'm not that clever. I just can't read. There's a reason the courts don't let me teach geography anymore. Apologies to our British listeners, who I've noticed as, uh, Quite a few of you in the UK, actually. That's nice to see. Uh, And apologies to everyone else who knew better. If I'm pronouncing the name of your town wrong, or you noticed I got something else wrong, please, don't be shy. Write to me at ikelandpodcast at gmail.com. Right. I wriggled out for a few weeks, but now it's time. It's time to sneak back into the trap. Right off the bat, we have a promise from Ike. He starts this chapter off with a promise that what's to follow is a summary of what he's uncovered after decades of quote-unquote research. If this is the result of decades of research, things are grim indeed. Ike writes, I am going to summarize in this chapter what I have uncovered about the true nature of the world that we see, and from then on, go deeper and deeper into the world that we don't see including the matrix, or simulation, which seeks to hold us in servitude to its manufactured illusions and separate us from prime and infinite reality beyond its technological outer limits. Yes, after 150-odd pages of preamble about himself, Ike's finally warmed up enough to start covering the topics this book is ostensibly about. Doesn't feel right to say we've arrived at the good stuff. Believe me when I say that none of it is good but at least we're not talking about Ike himself anymore. This section of the book is where Ike draws back the curtain and lays out for the reader how the world really works. When I say world, please remember that for Ike, there exists other levels of reality beyond what you and I are experiencing. 
We're not going to get to those levels just yet. We're focusing today on the bricks and mortar part of the conspiracy, the worldly parts of the conspiracy, if you will. In words you're likely never to hear anyone say again, ever. Ike explains it best. He writes, I will be going way beyond the world of the human five senses in the multi-leveled control system founded on the simulation. I'll start, however, with the reality that everyone is aware of, the illusory physical realm of apparently daily life. We will see later that physical is not physical at all, but you get my drift of where I am talking about. Open your eyes, and there it is. This is where the five senses tell us we are, even though we're not, and where everything looks apart from everything else with empty space in between. It is a world of buildings, vehicles, streets and fields, oxygen, carbon dioxide, the bastard, banking systems, corporations, governments, and the perceptual trickery called schools, university, media, and Silicon Valley. The five senses may deliver the illusion of apartness, and that's all it is. Illusion. In every way, all is connected, whether by a sea of consciousness beyond the limitations, laughable limitations, of human sight, or by the fact that all those banking systems, corporations, governments, and perceptual tricksters are controlled by the same interconnected web or global cult in pursuit of the same agenda of total human control. We are seeing today only where that agenda has now reached in its long-sought ambition and, extreme as it has already become, there is a way to go yet. Where it is planned to end would make the most out-there dystopian sci-fi movie seem like Mary Poppins. It took me longer than usual to arrange my thoughts in the aftermath of reading all this mumbo-jumbo, I'll admit, and longer again to start arranging everything Ike has given us into something presentable for an episode. Ike packs a lot into this chapter we're looking at today. In fewer pages than he's dedicated to his own biography, Ike begins explaining who really controls the world and how they're using mind control, COVID-19 vaccinations, the education system, fractional reserve banking, and transgender people, unfortunately, to take over the world. Approaching these topics the way Ike has laid them out in the book is... confusing, to say the least. So, for all our sakes, I've divided Ike's information into two categories that I'll be presenting over this episode and probably the next. The first is... Information about the forces that seek to control the world, who Ike calls the cult, quote-unquote, and two, the methods that these forces utilise to establish that control. Without further ado, let's set aside everything we think we know, stowing it either safely under the seat in front of you or in the overhead locker above to be collected at the end of the episode, and dive back in to Ikeland. The global cult, or just the cult, are central to Ike's mythology. The cult is the sticky tape which holds all of Ike's bullshit together. Ike writes, Those behind the breakneck descent into global dystopia, which my books have so long predicted, know how humans interact with reality and how we create our reality with our perceptual states. They just don't want the population to know. This revelation would set us free and the chosen few hoard and hide this knowledge across the generations in a global network of secret societies that I refer to as the global cult. 
At the same time, they purge and ridicule occult, hidden knowledge as best they can, where it permeates human society, and block its circulation in education, media, mainstream science, and medicine. They know that perception dictates behavior and experience, and if they could control perception, they control behavior and experience. Perception equals behavior equals experience, and collective behavior, perception made manifest, is what we call human society. Control perception, and you control the world. You control perception by programming the mind to perceive reality as you desire. We will see that even visual perception is not dictated by the eyes, but by the mind. Where does this human world exist as we experience it? In your mind, and nowhere else. The cult knows this, while the target population overwhelmingly doesn't. And this colossal built-in advantage is the foundation of how the few control the many, and always have. The target is not primarily your body. It's your mind. Now, the all-important question is, who are the cult? What do they want? Well, the short answer is, the cult are the bad guys, and they want bad things to happen. The long answer is more complicated and, uh, frankly, baffling. The cult is not an organization per se, okay? But a stratified coalition of individuals working in cooperation. The true purpose of the cult is revealed to individuals as they ascend the ranks of the cult. More information is revealed to members at each level. However, only those individuals at the tippy top know the truth, quote unquote, that they serve non-human forces. Despite me using terms like levels, to describe the cult, the cult has no such formalized structure. Organizations which funnel members into the cult may have formalized structures and ranks, but advancement of individuals in the cult itself is best understood in terms of how much they know about the non-human forces that they serve. Rather than a pyramid, which best describes the organizations which funnel members into the cult, the cult itself probably best envisioned as a series of concentric circles, okay? The outer circle knowingly serves the cult and pursues the cult agenda, but is ignorant of its true purpose or has been deceived about what the cult's true purpose is, while the innermost circle is fully aware of the non-human forces that the cult is enthralled to and willingly pursues the enslavement of humanity to their will. Ike himself uses the analogy of a web with the non-human forces being a spider at the center of it. Whatever floats your boat, I say. All of this is to say that the cult operates like an old-school mystery cult. Information is revealed to members as they progress. The more you learn, the better prepared you are to understand the next part which is revealed to you. Scientology works the same way. Think of that South Park episode about Scientology's belief in the alien overlord Xenu, if it helps. You don't know about Xeno and you don't find out about Xeno until you've wasted years and thousands of dollars and you're, you're already in too deep to stop. Anyway, here's how Ike tells us the cult works on a day-to-day -day basis. The cult is a mix of public-facing and globally recognizable organizations, controlled by and answerable to secret organizations, who in turn are controlled by and answerable to a loose, Nameless affiliation to people who serve the non-human forces seeking the enslavement of the human race. What they want is, to quote Ike, total human control by 
depopulation genocide. How they aim to achieve this total human control and depopulation genocide is confusing and not entirely sensical. Probably because Ike has been, yes, ending himself and incorporating more and more bullshit into his mythology for going on 30 odd years now. That's the too long didn't read version of Ike's bullshit. Here at Ikeland though, there is nothing too long and there is nothing we won't read. Let's dig into the meat and potatoes of Ike's bullshit from the trap. Regarding the cult's origins, Ike writes, You can comfortably pick up its journey to global control in ancient Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, in Sumer and Babylon, now called Iraq. This is the starting point, although it goes back further. Unfortunately, that's as close as an origin for the cult as we get. Some real gangbuster research there, Mr. Ike. If Ike has evidence that it goes back further, why would you leave it out? If there are cave paintings about the cult, then I want to hear about them. If Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble were in the cult, we deserve to know. Damn it, David! What did the Grand Poobar of the Loyal Order of Water Buffaloes know? And when did he know it? Gen Z, it's okay to pause here and Google my jokes about the Flintstones. If you can't be bothered to Google, or you don't have the time right now, let me assure you, these jokes are very clever, and I am very, very funny. Regardless, Ike continues the history lesson. Wherever the cult has located its operational centre, an empire has followed. The Babylonian and the other Mesopotamian empires, which at one point encompassed Egypt, became the, Ro- the Roman Empire when the cult established Rome. Later, when the cult located its headquarters in Britain, the British Empire followed on, which the sun never set, so extensive was its global real estate. At the same time, the cult was infiltrating other countries of Europe, and together, they embarked on the acquisition of the world via the empires of Britain, France, Belgium, Germany, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, and Italy. Right from the get-go, we've got something to raise an eyebrow. Ike's ancient timeline is a bit squiffy. Ike states that the Mesopotamian empires became the Roman Empire when the cult founded Rome. The empires of Mesopotamia, of which there were four, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Neo-Babylonians replaced one another in that order from around 2340 to 2125 BCE, before the Persians crashed the party in 539 BCE and took over Mesopotamia. By that time, people had been living in Rome for at least 800 years, and the Roman Republic had already been founded roughly 30 years earlier. The Republic wouldn't become an empire for another 500 odd years. So your guess is as good as mine as to what Ike means when he makes a claim that the Mesopotamian empires became the Roman Empire when the cult founded Rome, because none of those events line up at all. Perhaps an editor, you know, could have fact-checked that, and these wild claims could have been dropped, but... Here we are. For whatever reason, we don't get any information from Ike on what the cult did between the time of the Roman Empire and the start of... Western colonialism in 1500 CE. The last piece of information Ike gives us about the cult is that mention of them establishing Rome. We know the cult is out of Mesopotamia by 539 BCE, so let's give Ike some undeserved benefit of the doubt and say he means the cult established the Roman Republic in 509 BCE. That leaves us with a 2,000 year long gap with no information about what the cult was doing. What did they do for 2,000 years, David? There was a lot of stuff happening. A lot of really interesting stuff happening. Surely they got into some of it? 
Did they just get lost on the way to London? Did they lose track of time playing Street Fighter 2 at the arcade? Alas, we'll never know. There's also no mention of the cult making trouble in other areas of the world, like Asia, for example. Seems like a missed opportunity, a lot of room for growth into Asia, and some real prime candidates just waiting to be recruited into servitude. I'd like to shout out the Mongols in particular at this point, who conquered nearly a fifth of the world and apparently did it all without any cult assistance. Well done, Genghis Khan. Great job. We don't even get a mention of the cult's mischief in Eastern Europe. Apparently the cult is only interested in Western Europe. Coincidentally, a place Ike can't legally enter because of that travel ban he got slapped with for spreading misinformation about COVID-19. But you know, European colonialism wasn't just a scramble for imperial prestige and to steal land and resources from native peoples around the world. It was also the cult's big move out of Europe and into the position of global influence. Ike writes, During colonial occupation of pretty much the entire globe, the cult established subsidiary networks of secret societies and family bloodlines in each country, and when colonialism apparently ended with decolonization, this was no more than overt control being replaced by the much more potent covert control. At least with colonial occupation, the oppressed knew who was controlling them. The covert control means the population has no idea who their real rulers are, while believing that those they can see are making the decisions as political leaders and sundry dark suits in authority. This is fundamentally not the case. Colonization out of Europe was when the cult went global, and this became even more so with the advent of globalization and the global centralization of power in every area of life. For the few to control the many, decision-making has to be centralized, and to control the world, that has to be decision-making on a global level. The more you centralize power, the more power you have to centralize even quicker, and the process gets faster and faster, which is exactly what has happened. So that's how the cult got its tentacles into every nook and cranny of the globe. The cult piggybacked off of the colonial ambitions of the Western European nations, or inspired their colonial ambitions, Ike never clarifies, to set up franchises around the world as secret societies or familial bloodlines with influence. I detest Ike using the word bloodline here. To me, bloodlines smacks of mm, biological positivism. The idea that these families Ike fingers as cult associates have a genetic predisposition to evil or criminality is grotesque to me. He could have just said families and we would have got the point. There are influential families. There are criminal families. There are influential criminal families. But neither possessing influence or behaving criminally are the result of a biological imperative. Families are the primary force of socialization in our lives, teaching us how to behave. What a family teaches, overtly or inadvertently, might be the exercise of power and influence. And they might even teach that criminal behavior is acceptable. But those behaviors are taught, not bred. Criminals are people with problems, not problem people. When you start talking about problematic bloodlines, it only leads to the inevitable conclusion that those families need to be sterilized or purged. It's repulsive. And I hate it.
Okay, I'm stepping back off my soapbox now. So far, Ike has danced around the edges and flirted with specifics, but we need to know, specifically, just who exactly is in the cult. Well, Ike sort of answers. The Global Cult is a network of secret societies and semi-secret groups with an interlocking leadership that I call the Spider, from which the agenda for humanity emerges very much like a spider, weaving its web until everything is caught and can wriggle no more. If it feels like that today, well that's because it is. The spider is not ultimately human, and that's for later. The strands of the web close to the spider are the most exclusive secret societies, and most of those don't even have names, which makes them even harder to track and expose. Their members are the most in the know, and don't seek to put themselves out on public display. Among the next layer are families like Rothschilds and Rockefellers, or rather their most influential personalities who act as the senior fixers, answering ultimately to the non-human force behind it all. Now, just as we're starting to get some answers, Ike reminds us again why editors are so invaluable by going off on a tangent about banking. I'm busting to talk about Ike's banking nonsense and the white nationalist source that he's using for it, but uh, we'll come back to that. Picking up with Ike a few pages later. He writes, As we expand further out from the spider, those most exclusive secret societies and the levels of the Rothschilds and Rockefellers, we come next to the secret societies that we do know about in terms of their existence, if not their manipulations. These include the Freemasons, the elite, not the rank and file, the Knights of Malta, very associated with global finance, Knights Templar, Opus Dei, the inner sanctum of the Jesuit order, and the Skull and Bones Society in America, connected to so many US presidents and those in other influential positions. The Secret Society network is ginormous, and answers ultimately to the same masters. Most of their members don't even know this, due to fierce compartmentalization into levels of degree, degrees of knowledge. You can only progress to the next level when you're considered worthy or safe to be given the knowledge that exists there. Even at the apparent peak of these secret society pyramids, the chosen are fed into levels above that which other members don't even know exist. Here the real action happens, from expanded knowledge of where the world is really being taken, by whom, and to what end. Secret society initiates, and those from semi-secret offshoots, are placed in positions of power and influence throughout the national and global system, all answering the end of the spider and its agenda, even though the less significant ones won't even know there is a spider. Man, do these Rothschilds and Rockefellers ever take a day off? No time for sleep. Gotta conquer the world. Ike lists the Knights Templar, who no longer exist, alongside existent organisations. You know, the Freemasons, the Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, the Jesuits, the Skull and Bones. The Templars were disbanded in 1312, and it's interesting that Ike doesn't even pause to acknowledge that. Or, you know, acknowledge that at least, according to him, the Knights Templar still exist despite accepted history being that they haven't existed for 700 odd years now. There is the Order of Christ, who are sort of the successors to the Templars, absorbing many former Templars and property a few years after the Templars were disbanded. However, far from being an Order of Crusaders, today the Order of Christ exists only as an award conferred onto people who have performed an outstanding service in government 
or public administration to Portugal. Is Ike talking about that? Are the public servants of Portugal secretly ruling the world for the spider? As for the other organisations, you've probably heard of one of them if you haven't heard of all of them. The Knights of Malta, or Sovereign Order of Malta, are a Catholic order engaged in humanitarian and medical aid. At present time, they're assisting Ukrainians displaced by the Russian invasion. By their own report, as of February 2023, they've distributed half a million hot meals to internally displaced persons, provided 19,000 beds and shelters as well as generators, trained 13,000 people in first aid, and transferred 16 ambulances. So, good work all around from them. The Freemasons are a conspiracy mainstay. You can't throw a rock without hitting a conspiracy about the Freemasons doing something naughty. The Freemasons are a fraternal organisation, that's men only, which offers knowledge to its members to improve themselves. That's it. Bunch of dudes interested in self-development. The Freemasons instruct their members through allegory and symbolism. Ceremony and ritual are particularly important. The members meet in clubhouses known as lodges. Again, like the Order of Malta, the members do a lot of charity work. I'm not sure of the details, and I'll have to ask my dad, but... I remember him saying my grandfather was either a mason or interested in becoming a mason. My grandfather was a salesman for a windmill company in regional Western Australia, and apparently he told my dad that the masons were a good place to network. I think it's pretty safe to say that most masons would have similarly mundane motives. Or so they would have us think. Opus Dei, made famous by the dreadful Da Vinci Code, is a Catholic organisation. I can't remember if Opus Day were the good guys or the bad guys in the Da Vinci Code, but it doesn't matter because they neither hunt nor protect the living descendants of Jesus Christ as they did in that. Opus Day, like the Freemasons, exists to educate and promote personal growth in its members, by which I mean it teaches its members how to put their Catholic faith into practice in their daily lives. Again, lots of charity work. Opus Day members have helped establish technical and training centres, universities and hospitals just like a whole heap of other groups in the Catholic Church. And speaking of Catholics, the Jesuits, or the Society of Jesus, are a Catholic order of priests. The Jesuits have a long and admittedly complicated history. For one, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, the Jesuits participated in the slave trade across the Americas, as well as in Europe and in East Asia, as they saw the people enslaved as potential converts to Catholicism. Hmm, charming. More recently, Jesuit priests rescued and hid Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust. Now, the good doesn't wash out the bad, but my point is that uh, an organisation as old as the Jesuits is going to have, you know, a colourful history. Just like the Freemasons, they're always being blamed by conspiracy theorists for this, that, and the other. Probably because they are one of the most proactive Catholic orders. They're priests working as missionaries and teachers. The current Pope, Francis, he's a Jesuit. Skull and Bones have by far the most metal name of all the groups listed. Skull and Bones are a secret society, or as secret as a society one can be and still have your address freely available on Wikipedia. Also known as the Brotherhood of Death, metal as hell. The society is a student organisation at Yale University which has had many well-known members, some of whom have occupied positions of considerable power, notably both President Bush's, President Bushes? Presidents Bush? Big George and Little George. Anyway, Skull and Bones purposefully only admit members who are notable figures or big on campus, so 
That goes part of the way to explaining why so many of its members go on to notoriety after graduation. Graduating from, you know, Yale probably also explains a lot of their success too. Suffice to say, although there's similarities between these groups, the one commonality worth mentioning is that they all have been accused of covert influence or control over world affairs, if not the world itself, at some point or other. These are Fisher-Price's My First Conspiracy, as far as conspiracy theories go. The spider in these groups are doing a piss-poor job of staying under the radar. Everyone has heard of at least one of these guys in the context that they're up to no good. Conspiracy theories about the groups Ike names here have established themselves as a part of our popular culture, appearing in novels, comics, movies, and games. For some of us, hearing these conspiracy theories are the first time we learn about some of these groups. And you could argue that, for most of them, the conspiracy theory is better known than some of the organisations themselves. Who'd heard of bloody Opus Day before the Da Vinci Code? Not me. Consider this, though. Do you really need to exert covert influence when your members include popes and presidents? Perhaps I'm being overly critical. Ike is stressing that the rank and file, you know, the, the future popes and presidents, don't actually know that the upper echelons serve the spider. So all of that is to say, the tippy-top of certain secret societies and families, including, but not limited to the ones named here by Ike, feed into the super-duper secret society, the capital C cult. The rank-and-file members are out of the loop and know nothing about the cult or the spider. That's knowledge reserved for the guys at the very tippy-top of these secret societies. Now, those are all the secret, quote-unquote, secret societies. We're not supposed to know about those, remember? They're secret. Which is why we're hearing about them from Ike for the first time, and never in our lives have we heard these names uttered before now. For my own safety, I'm recording this podcast from an armoured train, constantly on the move, to evade the army of assassins which are hunting for me, even as you listen to this podcast. By the time you hear this, I may already be dead. Bummer. But you know, even a secret society can only do so much, and not everything can be done from the shadows. Even Batman has to be Bruce Wayne sometimes to get things done. Like Batman, the cult needs a public persona too. So how do they do it? Don't worry, Ike knows. He writes, We now reach that point in the web where the hidden meets the scene. Here we have what I call the CUSP organizations whose role is to take the agenda emanating from the spider through the unseen realm of secret societies and play it out into the world of the seen via governments and their agencies, corporations, mainstream media, Silicon Valley platforms, quote-unquote health systems, quote-unquote education, and such like. CUSP organizations are semi-secret in that they operate ostensibly in the public arena while pursuing a secret agenda below the surface. These include the Bilderberg Group, Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, the Trilateral Commission, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, and the Club of Rome, which was created by the cult in 1968 to exploit environmental concerns to justify the centralization of global power over the fine detail of people's lives. But it doesn't stop there. Ike continues. 
also located at this cusp are the seemingly millions of think tanks and non-governmental organisations, NGOs, including the Open Society Foundations of cult operative George Soros, which have played such a central part in funding and orchestrating the rise of the cult-serving woke mentality and cult-serving divide-and-rule operation Black Lives Matter, BLM. It's also tiresome. So just how do these CUSP organizations implement the designs and strategies of the cult? Ike explains. CUSP organizations and think tanks have the role of manipulating policy consensus in government and the system in general to allow the cult, the spider, to dictate events and direction. Hundreds of millions are playing their part in doing this while having no idea there even is a cult, let alone a spider. Influential people in politics, business, banking, media, and other institutions are invited to gatherings, and memberships of CUSP organizations such as the Bilderberg Group and the think tanks and NGOs to have their minds honed into a consensus policy that takes the world in the cult-desired, spider-desired direction. What is that direction? We're living it! According to Ike, it's the rank-and-file employees, the professionals, and the civil servants who like my own grandfather, get suckered in by these CUSP organisations. The CUSP organisations lure them in with networking opportunities and the opportunity for personal and professional development. Instead, they're ensnared, and these poor souls become unwitting tools of the spider, oblivious to their complicity in the spider's control of humanity. Now, Ike has included an explanatory diagram to help us sheeple understand the CUSP organisations. There's a few of these. So if you're reading along at home, first of all, why? But secondly, I'm talking about the one on page 162, a diagram of what Ike calls the round table. The caption of the diagram reads, Some of these cusp organisations, coordinated by a London-based Rothschild-created secret society called the Round Table, which was first headed by Rothschild agent Cecil Rhodes from the latter years of the 19th century. Also at this cusp is the extraordinary global networks of think tanks and non-governmental organisations. Now, all of that seems pretty important, but this is the only place in the book where Ike writes about the round table. Which is odd, because according to this diagram, they're a major player in world affairs. According to Ike's diagram, the round table coordinates the United Nations, the Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome, Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, and the Council on Foreign Relations. You'd think, being the power behind so many influential groups and bodies, that the round table would warrant a few pages. But uh, Ike seems to think a diagram will suffice. He's the expert, so who are we to argue? Anyway, the round table, the supposed secret society, is, or at least was, an actual organisation founded in 1909 with the aim of maintaining ties between Britain and its now well, then, now, self-governing colonies. These days, meetings under the banner of the Round Table take place occasionally to strengthen ties between Commonwealth countries, but otherwise it's defunct. American historian Carol Quigley exposed, quote-unquote, that is, invented, a conspiracy theory that the Round Table is a front for a secret society, the Society for the Elect, in his 1966 book Tragedy and Hope, a History of the World and Our Time, quickly claimed that the Society for the Elect, led by Cecil Rhodes, 
aimed to unite the, uni the English-speaking countries of the world under their control. Safe to say that's the basis for Ike's claim here. Now, as interesting as all that is, that isn't the main reason I want to talk about this diagram. What intrigues me is the diagram itself. At the center of the diagram is a circle labeled the round table, around which are six circles, each representing an organization Ike claims is under the sway of the round table. We have the UN, the Bilderberg Group, the Club of Rome, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, and the Council on Foreign Relations. The linkages between these organizations and the countries they originate from are illustrated by lines running between them. The effect is a six-pointed star, unmistakable as the Star of David, a recognized symbol of Jewish identity and Judaism. A diagram of who controls the world in the shape of a six-pointed star with a caption naming the wealthy Jewish Rothschilds family. I suppose this is what Ike thinks is subtle. Now, maybe I'm the one who should be wearing a tinfoil hat here, and I'm seeing connections where there's only coincidences. But, I find it hard to believe this could be unintentional or that it could slip by unnoticed. The messaging that Jews run the world isn't exactly subtle. Unfortunately, this isn't unfamiliar territory to Ike, as he's previously relied on the anti-Semitic forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, as evidence in his book, The Robot's Rebellion. Granted, he did claim that the Protocols were actually about reptilians who control the world, and not Jews. Reptilian claims or not, the fact is that Ike has included anti-Semitic material in his previous books. Use of the Protocols as evidence, this diagram, which looks like a clear-cut anti-Semitic dog whistle to me, and other sources Ike relies on in this book, which I haven't covered yet, make it harder and harder to believe Ike's half-hearted protestations that he isn't an anti-Semite. To summarize, thanks to Ike, we now know it goes like this. At the top is what Ike calls the spider, under whom we have the secret societies, some of which are nameless, but some of them well known, such as the Freemasons, etc., under which are the publicly operating cusp organizations, who filter the cult agenda into the public arena. The cult is made up of the tippy-top leadership of various secret societies who direct the oblivious rank-and-file members of their various secret societies, like my Freemason granddad trying to push windmills, to unknowingly advance the cult agenda through the public-facing cusp organizations, which is where the rubber meets the road and shit apparently gets done. Think of the WHO convincing us to get vaccinated. Ike writes, From the cusp organizations, the cult web expands out into human society and everyday life. This is the realm of the scene, the five senses, where everything appears random and apart from everything else. People look at the world, but most do not see. There is neither randomness nor apartness. Governments and their agencies, the financial systems, corporations, mainstream media, Silicon Valley platforms, health systems, including the World Health Organization, and education seem to have no obvious connections as people observe daily happenings. In fact, 
They are all structured like secret societies and employ the same techniques of knowledge control. Those at the top know the real motivations and the reason for being, while those at the bottom do not. Those in between know to varying degrees depending on their place in the hierarchy. The big penny drop comes when you realise that all these organisations and agencies are connected by the cult web if you go deep enough in their structure. This realisation, which was shown to me decades ago, makes sense of the world and daily events. Well, unlucky for us, we have someone like David Icke to spell it all out for us. There is, however, another piece of the puzzle. The world leaders, the politicians, and the political parties that us foolish sheeple mistakenly believe we have a say in electing. Ike knows better. It's all theatre. He writes, The two-party political system, sometimes three, is so easy to control if you have your agents in major positions in those parties to ensure that your people are selected into leadership roles. Democracies are really one-party states, as we see with the cult-owned Democrats and cult-owned Republicans in the United States and in the UK, the cult-owned Conservative Party and cult-owned Labour Party. But, as we should have realised by now, this isn't the limit of the cult's control. Oh no. Ike continues. The cult controls the media, polling organisations, and increasingly, voting systems themselves to secure the man or woman it wants as President, Prime Minister, State Premier, or Governor, etc. And electronic voting systems make that even easier. Okay, so why does the cult go to all this trouble? Ike writes, Cultists and their non-human masters don't like leaving things to chance, and they are terrified of states of flux that they cannot call. They want certainty and to know the final score before the game starts. This means seeking to control both sides and the referee, see drug regulation agencies and Big Pharma, I learned long ago how those who later advance into key positions are developed and programmed from a very early age and selected for what they will eventually do. That seems straightforward enough, I guess. The cult controls the political parties by ensuring their agents are in key positions. The cult also controls the media, and through the media, the cult controls the commentary and analysis of the parties and their policies to make a cult-friendly outcome more likely come election time does make me wonder how in the loop the cults operatives are. For example, in the UK, are the cults operatives in the Conservative Party aware that there are cult operatives in the Labour Party who serve the same masters? Do they coordinate? Or are they oblivious and ignorant of each other, each thinking that they alone serve the cult? The other thing is, Ike presents a pretty simplistic take on how political parties operate. Political parties are rarely, if ever, monolithic. A party will have a core ideology and agenda, but fractions will exist within the party with different ideas about policy, strategy, or even the party's purpose. These factions will compete within the party for leadership and the opportunity to set the agenda. Ike claims that the cult uses well-placed operatives inside organisations like political parties to control them. But I think if you really think, like really think, about what that would take to work in practice, you'll realise that there's no way a few operatives alone could steer the agenda of something as large as a major political party. For instance, let's look at the Labour Party in the UK as an example. Honestly, for no other reason than I just saw Keir Starmer, their leader, get covered in glitter by a heckler at their annual conference, and it's been on my mind. 
Besides being an opportunity to make the leader fabulous, the annual Labour Party conference is where the Labour Party decides policy. Delegates vote on policies. 50% of the delegates are representatives from constituency Labour parties, and they vote on behalf of party members in their local area. The other 50% are elected by trade unions affiliated with the party. So, in order for the cult to have an impact on Labour Party policy, they'd have to control a majority of these delegates, which means having operatives in the trade unions and in the Labour rank and file at the local level. And they'd have to do that to give this the veneer of legitimacy, of representative democracy. Am I right? Which either means a fair share of carpenters, boilermakers, plumbers, etc. are cult-owned or cult-true believers. You get the idea. It also means that the cult have infiltrated the party at the local level and are rubbing shoulders with the average Joe suburban mum and dad members of the party. That's a lot of cult operatives running around. How do you keep all that going without it being exposed, without any mistakes, without anyone publishing irrefutable evidence on social media? Now, I know you're saying, hang on Tom, hang on Mr. Podcaster, with your microphone and your big ideas. What if the cult are just swaying the counts of these delegate elections, or the votes on policy at the annual conference? That wouldn't require half as many operatives to pull off. And you'd be right. That would require fewer operatives, but the results of these elections aren't just trusted, they're verified, they're scrutinised, they're double-checked and certified, publicly, and not by a lone actor or a tight election-fixing unit of cult operatives. There would be witnesses, there would be a need for accomplices. People talk. People can't shut up. Look at me. No one asked me about David Icke, but here I am broadcasting my opinions to the internet. Okay, 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 Tom. Okay, Mr. Podcaster, I hear you say. But Mr. Icke said the cult control the media too, so the media are convincing people to vote in favour of the cult agenda. Well, here's what I'll say to that, hypothetical interlocutor. In an earlier episode of the podcast, when Icke was banging on about his career at the BBC, an organisation he claims is totally compromised by the cult and its agents. I speculated as to how or why Ike never witnessed any cult influence during his time there, and I find myself wondering the same again about his time in politics. In his brief stint with the Green Party, Ike's media savvy and celebrity took him to the upper echelons of the party. He was national spokesperson, for goodness sakes. Surely there he would have gathered an anecdote or two, or heard a rumour that he could cite as evidence. Surely he's seen it or heard it, or maybe even been approached as a potential recruit. He must have seen the BBC bury a story or two as well, or invent some to push the cult agenda, right? Except no, he doesn't claim that. He hasn't exposed any of his former colleagues as corrupt cult disinformation agents. He's talked shit about a few he didn't like, but he hasn't exposed any as working for the cult. Obviously, the reason I can't talk about witnessing the cult's meddling firsthand is because there's no cult meddling to witness, and if he invented a story, then in all likelihood, it would involve real people he worked alongside who could refute or contradict it. Ike can only make vague claims about cult control because he has no smoking gun. Now, I'll admit, absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence, but I think on the balance of probabilities and the scale of the deception required, really think about the scale for a minute. We can say Ike is full of shit, 
Still, it's an interesting set of circumstances. Here's Ike, former media star and former politician, two arenas he constantly claims are totally compromised by the cult. But he only started talking about that years after his involvement with either has long been over. Well, it's been nice to be back in front of the microphone talking about David Icke. I think uh, this is as good a point as any where we can break this one into two. Next time, we're going to talk about the, uh, the evil schemes of the cult. We've covered who the cult are, kind of, sort of, as much detail as Ike gives us anyway. So it's time we turn our attentions to how the cult is using uh, perceptions of reality in order to manipulate us and therefore take over the globe and reduce the population massively. If you have any feedback, if you have any thoughts, if you have any corrections, by all means, please email me at ikelandpodcast at gmail.com. Keep in mind, we also have a Patreon. Uh, you can find us on Patreon, Ikeland. Uh, please feel free to go ahead and support us there. Any support is, you know, unnecessary, but very much appreciated. I've got mounds to feed. And if you like listening to Ikeland, well, then that'll ensure that we can keep going indefinitely into the future. Until next time, remember that you, or someone you love, may at any point become a cult disinformation agent. Thanks for listening. Bye.